morning. There we go. I know it's there. Uh, and yes, hello to those of you online. One of you texted me just like five minutes before service started, so I know you're watching. It's good to say hello. Uh, my name's Jeff, if we haven't met, and I'd love to meet you if we get the chance after the service. And I thought I'd start. I'm actually, I dove into my uh, reservoir. I, I kind of started a sermon once this way about five years ago. It was about five years ago. The first series I did as a pastor at Crossview Church, I did through the book of Colossians. We just worked our way through the book of Colossians. And, and I was thinking about this, and I, I'm, I'm redoing it because I love it. I don't know if you've ever gotten into all the Chuck Norris jokes that are out there. Chuck, Chuck Norris is this actor, you know, from like the 80s and 90s. And somehow, I don't know, how, I really would love to know how Chuck Norris just kind of became larger than life. It had to be something about his timing and the, the way the internet was unfolding at the time. But there's... All these jokes, I mean, you just type in, there's like 101 or more jokes about Chuck Norris. I'll give you about, about 10 that caught my fancy this week. Cars look both ways before Chuck Norris crosses the street. Chuck Norris once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. Chuck Norris found the fountain of youth, but he wasn't thirsty, so he didn't drink. Chuck Norris won the Lifetime Achievement Award twice. Chuck Norris makes fire by rubbing two ice cubes together. Chuck Norris wrecked his bicycle and skinned the sidewalk with his knee. Chuck Norris has inside jokes with complete strangers. I don't know, I just like that line. (laughs) Chuck Norris doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants. Chuck Norris can dribble a bowling ball. Chuck Norris does not use spell check. If he happens to misspell a word, Oxford will change the spelling. And finally, I I do love the game Connect Four, so I saw this one for the first time this week. Chuck Norris once won a game of Connect Four in three moves. There you go. (laughs) Chuck Norris, larger than life, but... And sometimes, you know, we hold to this Christian doctrine that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It's really important that we hold to that. Everything we need to know about God, we learn through the person of Jesus. Everything God wants to say, he said in Jesus. But we also learn, and this is really important for our discipleship, we also learn that Jesus is fully human. So everything that it means to live a fully human life, we learn as we look and study and interact with Jesus Christ. And for the early church fathers, this was really important because they really leaned into the fact that everything it means to be human, Jesus was. Because that means that Jesus can save every part of who we are. If Jesus was fully, if God entered into the fullness of humanity, then all of our brokenness can be redeemed because Jesus will redeem it all. And I say that this morning because, because we do talk a lot. We talk very much, don't we, about the deity of Christ here. We lift Jesus. We sing about the deity of Christ, right? That's our anthem. Jesus is the center. But sometimes we can focus so much on the deity of Christ that we lose sight of his humanity. And I think it has a major implication on our discipleship. Because if you read through the Gospels, Jesus was not Chuck Norris, <laughs> Uh, Many today, including some devout Christians, see him as a kind of superhero. That Jesus could just do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted to. In in the sense of Chuck Norris, he could roundhouse kick reality into any shape he liked. (laughs) 
But that's not what we see of Jesus in the Gospels. And, and we're going to lean into that. If we really want to enter into our story this morning, we've got to lean into that reality, the humanity of Jesus. Because Jesus was tempted, and he was really tempted. This is not a parody. There is real drama in this story. The Son of God is being tempted by the great enemy. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 4, uh, the temptation of Jesus. This is, again, we're going through the church calendar. I'll talk a little bit about it here as we get started. But we're, we're trying to, uh, we've been going through the church calendar to arrange life around the life of Jesus. And I'll even make it a little clearer this morning as we talk about Lent. We just entered Lent. The first Sunday of Lent, uh, often in the church calendar, the temptation of Jesus is preached. And I, I think it'll become very clear why that is as we get into it. If you, have, if you have your Bibles, I mean, some of you might be following along on the screen or on your phone, but if you have your Bibles open, you even see, as I talk about the humanity of Jesus, in Mark and Matthew and Luke, we have the story of the temptation of Jesus that always follows the baptism of Jesus. And, and, we'll, and we'll talk about that. That's important for our context of what's going on. But in Luke's gospel, he inserts this genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, as if to say, before you read the account of Jesus' temptation, remember he's human. Remember, he's a, he's a descendant of Adam in a sense. Because what's going to happen is, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but, but Jesus is going to be tempted in the way that every human being gets tempted. Tempted in the way that Adam and Eve were tempted, but Jesus will succeed where they failed. In fact, we don't have time to go into everything in the text this morning, but Jesus is going to quote Deuteronomy. Because again, what Jesus, the, the people of Israel were called to be a light in the darkness, but they failed again and again. And Jesus is going to succeed Everywhere Israel failed. Jesus is the one we've been longing for. Fully God and fully man. And it begins, chapter 4, verse 1, after the genealogy. It begins with this word, then. And I'm going to come back to that word. Kind of our first little thought will be about the word then and what's happening in the context here. But Luke writes, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River from being baptized. And he was led, he was led by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, led him into the wilderness. Where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all uh, at that time and became very hungry. So if you were with us last week, I talked a little bit about how it's common for the church to fast during Lent. And I talked about how last Wednesday was the beginning of Lent, and the color for Lent is purple, so did you notice? One of you said, Jeff, you should wear purple. I was like, I'll try to remember, and I did. We've entered into the season of Lent, but, but you may, why, why, why are we fasting during Lent? Why do we fast? What's, why does Lent begin on Ash Wednesday? How do I make sense of the church calendar? And remember, we're trying, because we're so, if we're not formed by Jesus, if we're just formed by modern-day Babylon, you and I will naturally arrange our calendar around other things. And being in a consumeristic culture, we will typically arrange the way we think about time through when it's time to buy what. And we're trying to go against that. We're trying to arrange our calendar around Jesus to keep Jesus central. So you think about it. I said Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. That's 46 days before Easter Sunday. And I invited you to join us in fasting from a behavior or a food or or some kind of technological consumption. Something like that. And on Ash Wednesday... 46 days before Easter. But I said, you only fast Monday through Saturday. You feast on Sunday. Well, there's six Sundays before Easter once Lent begins. So let's do a little math. Some of you know I was an engineer in a previous life. Let's do a little math. 
46 days of Lent minus six Sundays of feasting is 40 days of fasting. (laughs) So it's not an accident that Lent is what it is. We, We fast because... Jesus fasted in the wilderness when he was tempted. We're we're taking the story of Jesus very seriously when we follow the church calendar. Let's keep reading. Then the devil said to him, so we're going to talk about this. If you are the son of God, and and we could go even deeper, and there's just so many ways that we could draw this back to the Garden of Eden, and, and the devil questioning Eve and making her think about what the Father has said, right? If you are the son of God, that's what just happened at the baptism, tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus says, no, he's going to quote scripture. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. So then the devil will try this again. He took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. And the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please, I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus says, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God. Serve only him. So the devil takes one final swing. He takes Jesus to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, if you are. I mean, I'm not sure if you are, but if you are, jump off. For now he's going to use scripture back at Jesus. The scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Then Jesus says, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. (laughs) And then verse 13. This is fascinating. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Isn't that interesting? We're going to walk through these temptations a little bit, and I'll try to point out that, the, that, that Jesus is going to be tempted by these same temptations. And I'll try to draw some of them out for you so you can just kind of, maybe, and maybe you'll even see more as you read through the Gospels on your own. But I told you I want to start with this word, Then. And I actually, I did a lot of reflecting, just sitting with the passage. I like to prayerfully just sit in the passage as I pray during the week. And, and I actually just, I just had some great, I just had some great reading this week. I mean, it's a pretty a well-known passage. And I just, there's like three different authors that really, really help shape this sermon. And this is one of them. One of them had this to say. I think this is a good place to start as we engage this morning. Then, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After great blessing and success came trial and temptation. No one can ever seem to secure a life of sustained success, joy, and blessing. As hard as we try, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well things are going, something comes in to ruin it. Even the most talented, diligent, and savvy people can't escape the ups and downs of life. Ah, you may say, but what if we did our part better? What if we lived good lives and obeyed God and prayed every day, asking him to protect us from all the suffering and the difficulty? The answer is fine. Go there. What if you actually could overcome all of your faults and flaws? What if you could become perfectly wise and understand God's way 
God's ways, the human heart and the times and seasons such that you always made wise decisions? What if you could have faith in God without wavering? What if your life were perfectly pleasing to God? Then surely God would protect you and your own holiness and wisdom would guard you as well and your life would always go well, right? This author says wrong. Wrong, because here in Luke 4 stands the one who did it. God the Father has just said that Jesus' life is perfectly pleasing to him. And, and the Spirit of God has descended on him to guide him with all wisdom. And look what happens. Jesus is loved and affirmed and empowered by God. And then, then... Then he is ushered into the clutches of the devil. So here's the order. God's love and power. And then evil comes with temptation, wilderness, terrible hunger, and thirst. That little word then is an amazing word. It is almost like Luke is trying to tell us, read my lips. No one is exempt from trials and tribulations. In fact, this is often what happens to people God loves very much, for it is part of God's often mysterious and good plan for turning us into something great. So let's pause there for a second. I actually, the elders met yesterday and we prayed. We prayed for a long time. There's a lot to intercede on behalf of our church family for right now. But we wrapped up our time of prayer and we wanted to spend a little bit of time just kind of like investing each other, learning from each other. And I just asked this question, and maybe maybe this is enough for you this morning to, to sit with, to wrestle. But I know, I know that in the last two years, even if you were operating with unbelievable wisdom and faith in God, you still experienced the ups and downs of life. I know every one of us faced some trials and some temptations in the last two years. And I asked the elders, can you look back at any of those times that were really hard in the last 24 months? Can you name them? Can you name them out loud? And are you far enough away to see how Jesus has worked good out of them? (laughs) It was actually kind of a beautiful moment because we got real honest, real vulnerable with one another, kind of some of our weakest moments in the last 24 months, but then we were able to draw our eyes to Jesus. Yeah, it was really hard. It was really trying. It was really testing at the time. But let me tell you what Jesus has done. (laughs) How Jesus got me through it. How Jesus has lifted me up. It just, man, it fills my soul to be with brothers or sisters who remind me of who Jesus is. It's one of the things that I say frequently in our discipleship pathway formed. I try to remind us that some of the greatest curriculum for your growth is what's happening in your life right now. I mean, that's one of the ways to think about where you work. Well, how does what we do together on Sunday translate to where you work on Monday? Well, God is trying to grow you to be more like him in the spaces where you work every day. God is leaning into some of these relationships, even some of these difficult relationships, and trying to help you learn how to love as you've been loved. Pay attention to what's happening in your life. Don't miss a thing that God wants to do. Some of it's hard, some of it's trying, some of it's testing, but God is with you and he's trying to help you grow. Well, I'm going to go back to these temptations. And I thought about it. I thought there's a lot of ways I could teach this text. I thought about going through each, and I'll go through each temptation kind of quickly. But we could have spent a lot. We probably could have done three sermons, one on each temptation. 
And I was actually, I was reminded of my gospels professor in seminary, Dr. Grant Osborne, which I told you we kind of transitioned this year. We're going through the New Living Translation, and Dr. Osborne was the senior translator for the gospels in the New Living Translation. That's one of the reasons I'm just enjoying reading through it. I remember my friend, he's passed away. But Dr. Osborne, when I was taking his class in seminary on the gospels, he was writing a commentary on the book of Matthew. I mean, he he knows more about the gospel. I mean, he's forgotten more about, the, or he had forgotten more about the Gospels than I had read. You know, like he just, brilliant man. And I remember from time to time, he would be teaching a text and he would say, you know, five years ago I taught this text this way. But as I've been working on my Matthew commentary, I'm learning new things and now I'm going to teach it to you this way. And I just remember being in awe of this man. He, he knows so much. I mean, people are paying him to read what he has to say about the Gospels, and he's still learning about Jesus. I just love the humility, just the passion. He's never done. He's just always so excited to learn more about Jesus, to study the Word of God. And I had a feeling of that this week. I'm like, I'm going to teach, teach the temptations away today. I might not teach it the same way in five years, but I'm kind of excited to teach it this way today. We could, we could draw back, we could look at some of these temptations, because I do think they are the temptations that prevail throughout humanity. They almost bookend the Bible. You find these temptations right away. Three temptations in the Garden of Eden. Genesis says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate of it. Uh, if we go to the, near the end of the New Testament in 1 John, John is going to say we have three temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I mean, there's these three temptations that run all the way through Scripture. I think all of humanity faces them. Jesus is going to encounter them here in the wilderness. He's fasting and he's praying. He's pushing himself to the limit of human endurance. And he's all alone. I'm going to lean into this a little bit, but, but we only know this story because Jesus tells it. No one else is with him. And I, I mean, I could say more about this, but let me just say it so I say it clearly. What happens in your private life when nobody else is looking really matters. It really matters. You think nobody else is looking. You think I can get away with it. No, it really matters for the sake and health of your soul. It matters. It matters for our church, our community. Our community is a healthier place when you're healthy, when nobody's looking. It really matters. Well, nobody is looking, and Jesus is in the wilderness. And what are they doing? This is where I want to step back. I'm going to do a kind of a higher level look at these temptations. But what, what is really going on for Jesus here? Well, you think about it. He's just been commissioned. He's just kind of been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's just been sent out to begin his ministry. He's, he's no longer behind the scenes. He is now going to be very public in his mystery, ministry. He's, he's, bring, he's enacting, he's announcing the kingdom of God. And so I think it's very logical to assume that Jesus is like, all right, now's the time. Now is the moment where I'm going to enact the kingdom of God. How should I do it? Isn't it reasonable to think that Jesus went off into the wilderness before he began his ministry to, to ask the question, how should I bring about the kingdom? How is Jesus to be Israel's representative, her rightful king? How can he deliver Israel and thereby the whole world from the grip of the enemy? How can he bring about the real liberation, not just from Rome or other political foes, but from the arch enemy, the devil himself. How is Jesus going to go about bringing the kingdom? 
And as he's asking that question and praying and fasting in the wilderness in silence and solitude, the devil comes to him. Now, I want to tell, tell this story a little bit differently because I think it might give us a different way of accessing the story in a way that might make a little bit more sense. So let's remove ourselves from the wilderness for just a moment. And let me just, let me just tell a story about me. If I were to tell you that I was praying and preparing and thinking about how to preach this text this week in my office, just right over there. And then I was just telling you the story. And I said, and the devil came to me. And he began to tempt me to say things that I know aren't true. If I say the story that way, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but would any of you, would any of you picture, like, you know what the front of the church looks like? You walked in here or you've been here before if you're online. You, 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 does anybody picture this red being with horns and a goatee and a pitchfork and a tail and a cape walking through the front door, kind of waving at Alyssa or Sandy in the office and coming into my office and sitting down in, my, in a chair in my office and and, and then saying something like this, how, how tempting does this sound to you? All right, Jeff, I'm the devil and I'm here to tempt you. I've got some evil and devious things that I want you to do on Sunday morning. What do you say? I mean, how many of you are like, oh, sure thing, no problem. I love evil. Let's do this thing, devil. I don't think that's, I, don't, I mean, sometimes you can picture the wilderness as, as some kind of, but, but what if the whole thing is playing out in Jesus' mind? Because, because the Bible is very clear that the devil is crafty and he's subtle. And you and I probably aren't going to do evil for the sake of evil. The only way you and I are going to engage in evil is if we think it's good. So I want to invite you this morning to imagine Jesus in the wilderness asking this question, how do I want to announce and enact the kingdom of God and the devil in camouflage, in disguise, coming to Jesus as Three good ideas. At least seemingly good ideas. Jesus needs, he's tempted by them. And I want to just walk a little bit through what these temptations may have looked like for Jesus. Maybe it's not a visible figure, but it's the devil's voice, because that's how he comes to you and me, right? Just these plausible ideas that just, they just seem to make sense in the moment. There's a temptation there. But they're always shortcuts. We're going to talk about shortcuts. They're always shortcuts. You say, but Jesus is God. He can't be tempted. Well, I say he's also human. And this is what the author of Hebrews says in two places. Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 18. Since Jesus himself has gone through suffering and testing, he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are being tested. We're tempted. (laughs) That should be good news to you because you and I are tempted Lots of good ideas that aren't really good ideas, right? But Jesus can help you. He can help me. Or Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest of ours, Jesus, the true high priest, understands our weaknesses. You say, well, no one understands my weaknesses. You don't know how low I get in my weaknesses. I say, maybe I don't, but Jesus does. Jesus understands your weaknesses. He's faced all of the same testings you have, and Jesus didn't sin. You know what that means? Again, it's this theme that runs all the way through Genesis. We're introduced to it in Genesis with Enoch. There is a way to live that doesn't end in death. And Jesus is inviting you and I into this way, this way of abundant life. 
So the devil comes and he suggests three good ideas. Uh, we'll summarize them. That's someone else's summary, but I think they're helpful this morning for as quickly as we're going to go through this. To feed everyone, to liberate everyone, and to persuade everyone. I think you could say, for the sake of this morning, the, the first temptation is to feed everyone and forget about God. It's the temptation to make the kingdom of God solely about justice. Jesus is thinking about how to establish the kingdom of God. And what could be more wrong with the world than the fact that some of our brothers and sisters in humanity are going hungry? And maybe Jesus, as he's thinking about how to bring the kingdom, has this idea, well, what if I make the kingdom of God all about setting the world right and meeting people's material needs apart from God? No need to spend time with all this worship stuff or religious stuff or this gathering on Sunday mornings. We'll just go out and meet material needs for people. I mean, Jesus could make his ministry all about justice and just bypass all of the God business. You could say it's the temptation to fulfill the second commandment of Jesus without the first. What does Jesus say the two great commandments are? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is a temptation to just love your neighbor and not worry about loving God. But it never works. I mean, Jesus, Jesus sees through the shortcut because he knows that you can't love your neighbor. You really can't sustain loving your neighbor. You don't even know how to love your neighbor apart from the love of God. And when it's tried, and we could give examples, when it's tried, when justice is tried without the love of God, justice becomes an idol. We don't have time for church or praying or seeking God. We, if, you, if you begin that way, it won't be long before you aren't formed enough. I mean, the sin, the evil that's there in your heart that you need to be saved from takes over and you, you get corrupted and, and, and you begin to commit new injustices. You and I are too broken to love our neighbor without the love of God. The Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone. That's what Jesus says, but by every word from God. And I want to be clear that meeting material needs is legitimate. We are, we are committed to that here at Crossview. But if you try to make that stand alone without any other foundation, it will collapse. If you try to turn the kingdom of God into just acts of justice, you are depriving people of what they need most. And what we all need most is a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's what our soul longs for. So yes, we want to meet material needs, but we also want to point people to Jesus. Because that's where we will really be satisfied and healed. Now I told you the devil leads, but he leaves, but he... But he comes, he comes back when the next opportunity arises. He's, he's going to tempt Jesus again and again throughout his ministry. Because Jesus is going to bring justice. I mean, when, when he heals the lepers, when, when there's some of the people he heals, when, what he's doing is he's bringing them back into society so th- those who have been marginalized and mistreated now find their rightful place among others. I mean, Jesus wants to see justice. He cares about justice. <laughs> but... But, but, you, but you think about maybe the clearest story is in John chapter 6, which we're going to end with when we enter into communion. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And what happens right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6? The people try to forcibly make him king. <laughs> it's a temptation again. 
Satan has come back, but Jesus, no, no, he slips away. And when we get into communion, we'll see what Jesus says the very next day about feeding on the word of God. That's the first temptation. The second temptation is to liberate everyone and bypass the cross. We talk a lot about how the kingdom of God is a different kind of kingdom, and it doesn't come like any other kingdom. But you have to imagine that Jesus wrestled, why don't I just become king like everyone else? It's the temptation to bypass the way of the suffering servant and seize the throne through the will to power. The temptation to justify the means by the end. But Jesus, now Jesus is pretty convinced that the will of the Father is to bring the kingdom by the cross and not by the sword. That he is not going to avoid suffering. That somehow that is the way the kingdom is going to come in our midst. And somehow, we sang about it, but, but that how, that's how Jesus is going to free us. That's how he's going to liberate us on the cross. Again, this temptation is maybe easier to spot because it's this passage we keep talking about. Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you've got it. Now we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Peter says, no. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, that's the good idea that I'm trying to resist. You don't think, I I don't want to suffer. (laughs) It's very tempting to go another way, but this is the will of the Father. And this is what the world needs to be saved. Or just read through the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he's wrestling with it. He's in Bethany. Or he's not far from, in Gethsemane, he's not far from Bethany where his friends are. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. It's like, it's like less than a day's walk. It's a couple hours. He can get out of there before he goes all the way to the cross. He's, you know he's, re- but, but Father, not my will, but your He's tempted throughout his ministry. Satan comes. Here's a good idea. But Jesus resists. He always does the will of the Father. But Jesus loves us. He's, he's invested. He cares about us. Now, Jesus knew that, that if the end was to be truly beautiful, the means would have to be truly beautiful too. And I even like to think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and think, I mean, it helps me understand his humanity. And it helps me understand how, how much he loves us. I was reminding our formed class of this on Wednesday night, and I'm realizing the more I say this, the more like people really, it's really helpful for people as we wrestle with our identity and being loved by God. But it, with the way we think about value, value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for. And I just want to remind you, I like to say, but Jesus didn't go to the cross looking for a bargain for you. And he didn't have a booklet of coupons. (laughs) Jesus went, he wrestled. He wrestled through testing and temptation. But he wanted to go to the cross because he knew it would bring our salvation. He didn't look for a discount price. He He paid full price for you and me. He spilt his blood for you and me. That's how much Jesus loves you. He's willing to endure all kinds of intense temptation Because he loves you and I so much. And then you've got this third temptation. I like to think of it this way. The temptation to persuade everyone and eliminate faith. The temptation to prove God empirically, either by miracles or by science, and thus remove the need for faith. I mean, as the devil tempts Jesus to throw himself off the temple and be caught by the angels... 
Don't you think that behind that is a bit of the question, why isn't God more obvious or maybe more appropriate for our time? Why isn't God more entertaining? Why doesn't God just convince everybody or why doesn't God make this whole discipleship thing easier or more fun? And the devil came, bro, you're going to bring the kingdom, you're going to enact the kingdom. Why don't you make everything empirically provable and entertaining? But the temptation is to make faith unnecessary. And Jesus says, no, faith is, the, faith is the foundation of this relationship with God. Now, to become who you were made to be, it has to be by faith. So Jesus stands, all these temptations come, and again, they're all shortcuts. Shortcuts. Let's turn stones into bread. Let's set the world right without all this God stuff. Just worship Satan. The cross takes too long, so let's take the sword and make everyone. <laughs> or let's throw yourself off the temple. Let's, let's prove God. Let's be entertained. All of these apparently good ideas come straight out of the mind of the devil. You just got to know that. <laughs> One author says, the devil is but another name for our impatience. We want bread and we want to force God's hand to rescue us. We want peace and we want all this now. But Jesus is our bread. And Jesus is our salvation and he is our peace. And that he is so requires that we learn to wait with him in a world of hunger, idolatry, and war. To witness to the kingdom that is God's patience. The Father will have the kingdom present one small act at a time. And I want to remind you that even though Jesus chose a different route, it's not the quickest route, it's not a shortcut, it's a longer route, it's good for you and me. (laughs) You and I can be glad that God is patient. Because Jesus is not merely a heavenly king who came to destroy all evil in one stroke. Evil is deep within us. Evil is deep within you, and evil is deep within me. And if Jesus had come to end all evil on the spot, he would have ended us. But instead, he is a king who comes not to a throne, but to a cross. He comes to be tempted and tried, to suffer and die, so that you and I can have life. And he's so patient with us. I told you that God is always using our life, our relationships to try to help us grow. It happens to me all the time as a dad. I can't tell you how many times I've said to Jay in the last two weeks, how many times have I told you? How many times have I told you to put your dish in the dishwasher? How many times have I told you to take the cardboard, don't leave it on the counter, put it in the recycle? How many times? And about 80% of the time I say those very words to Jay, the Holy Spirit says, yeah, Jeff, and what about you? How many times have I told you to love or to forgive or to be patient or to confess or to repent? How many times, Jeff? And then I hear that because this is how we learn. This is how we grow. God says, why don't you practice patience with Jay like I practice patience with you? (laughs) And I find hope and I find life and I find abundant life because God is at work pursuing me and loving me. So again, we probably could have leaned into each temptation and, and maybe gone a little bit. There's other ways I could have preached this text, but I, because I kind of took a high-level view, because I, I wanted you to feel what Jesus is wrestling with. Wrestle with his humanity this morning, fully God and fully human. 
But what do we learn from Jesus about our own resisting of temptation in general? Maybe not these specific temptations, but temptations in general. Well, I think as you, if you take this passage seriously, Jesus is fighting. It's a real battle. But I want you to think about how he fights and what it looks like. Jesus is fighting through practices from his way. Practices that we typically call at Crossview spiritual disciplines. Jesus is all alone with the Father in the desert. In what has come to be called silence and solitude. He's in prayer. He's fasting. And his mind and his mouth are full of Scripture. And this really is how we as apprentices of Jesus fight the devil. Not by some emotional or spiritual frenzy. We simply stand in quiet confidence in God's truth through the practices of Jesus. You could say it this way. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Meaning it's through the practices of Jesus that we present our minds and bodies before God and open our souls to his spirit and truth. You say, well, I don't know much about the spiritual disciplines. I say, guess what? I'm teaching on it at form this Wednesday. <laughs> so you can come this Wednesday at 6.30 in the fellowship hall if you want. You haven't been to any of the other ones. If you just want to come for one time, we're talking about the spiritual disciplines this week. Come and take a step. Take Jesus seriously. Practice these things. Be formed in the ways of Jesus. If Jesus practiced these things, how much more should we? Not because we are taking control of our salvation, but it is by engaging in these disciplines that we create space to rest in the grace of God. We choose to do these things because Jesus did them and we're following Jesus. And as we do, the Spirit of God does things for us that we can't do for ourselves. I was talking with one of you not that long ago, maybe a week or two ago. We were just talking about spiritual transformation. And how you get to these moments where you're like, oh, I'm in a situation I've been in before, but I'm behaving differently and I don't know how, other than God is at work in my life. And and you see how great that is because then there's the spirit of gratitude and all praise, all glory goes to God. You and I don't take credit. I've just been following Jesus. I've been doing what Jesus does. I haven't done anything at all. And the spirit of God is changing me. And I'm growing in love and forgiveness and peace and joy. And I'm actually a part of the kingdom of God coming in our midst. Jesus prays, he practices solitude, and and clearly he knows his scriptures. Folks, do not wait until you're in the pit to start reading the Bible. Now, if you are in the pit, start reading the Bible. But don't wait. Get this stuff in your head and in your heart so that when the pit comes, You're ready. When you're weak, when you've pushed yourself to your limits and the devil comes with a good idea, you know that's not a good idea. Modern day Babylon has so many quote unquote good ideas that are horrible. Horrible for your soul. And man, the the, the Bible's a gift. And uh, and I mean, there's a lot of people in our church family who've studied this book well. Get to know people sitting around you. Come to Sunday school, come to a small group, come to Formed. Start reading your Bible. You don't have to know everything. It's a big book. But just begin. I have a feeling the Holy Spirit will guide you to these amazing places. You'll be so surprised how truth you need on a given day will just appear as you're studying the Word of God. But I think it's interesting that Jesus responds to the devil not by attempting to argue, 
Because arguing with temptation is often a way of playing with the idea until it becomes too attractive to resist. Jesus is just quoting scripture. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we can hear the temptation and we try to just like, you can't just like avoid thinking. You can't just go blank. You have to replace the lies with truth. That's why scripture becomes so powerful. Because you're active, you're engaging, you're replacing the lies with truth of scripture. We talk a lot about identity because our identity is constantly under attack. And we replace the lies with the, the truth of who the Bible says we are, who God says we are. Jesus quotes scripture. You and I need to know it. And it is interesting that this story is, it's a battle. It's a real battle, but it's more like a conversation, isn't it? <laughs> there are no swords. There's no screams of fury. There's no Zeus-like battle cry, but it is a full-on fight. And as you read through it, though, I can't help but picture Jesus is, he just remains this calm, non-anxious presence, doesn't he? I mean, yes, I think he's really tempted, but he's, he's not anxious or fearful. And it doesn't take him too long. I mean, pretty quick. I mean, he, he never sins. It doesn't take him too long. Ah, so that's not, it came as a good idea. That's not a good idea. I know the will of the Father. He just exudes a quiet confidence in his Father's truth. And I like this picture of standing. Maybe, I mean, we, we do engage in battle, but I like this picture of standing. I was going to read two verses, but for the sake of time, I'm looking at, the, at my watch. You can read 1 Peter 5 on your own, verses 8 and 9. But I'm going to read from Ephesians 6. Look at what Paul says. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty, mighty power. He says, Put on all of God's armor. Not just, don't just pray. Put on all of God's mighty armor. Pray. Read your Bible. Practice solitude. So that you will be able to do what? Stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. I mean, <laughs> God knows what the devil is up to, and he actually wants to help you. He wants to help you stand strong, and he has equipped you. Sometimes I have such compassion for friends that I have who don't know Jesus because the resources available in Jesus are the best resources there are. And if you know Jesus, take advantage of what he's providing for you. Put on all the armor of God. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, and then after the battle you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground. (laughs) Follow Jesus. And this is Lent, and so... You and I are going to be tempted, but we're on our way to the cross with Jesus. And I want to remind us where I can as we approach Good Friday of all the ways, because there's so many things happening on the cross, and I I kind of want to point that out as we journey to the cross. But really, if you struggle with evil, if you struggle with temptation, if you struggle with, with the lies of the enemy, you do need to know that on the cross, Jesus has decisively defeated evil. Uh, Paul will write about that in Colossians. He has decisively defeated evil. Now he's patient. And he, and, and he is allowing evil to continue until he returns. And when he returns, which we know he will, the resurrection guarantees that, evil will finally be eliminated. And we will celebrate the judgment of God. And he will judge all evil. Well, what I want to do now is kind of prepare us for communion, kind of build on some of this. 
And to do that, what I want to do is I'm going to read from John chapter 6. We're not going to play a song right now. I want to invite our ushers to come forward and pass the communion elements. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come up if you want to come up. But I'm going to invite you, I want to, what I want to do before we receive communion is I want to read from John chapter 6 while all this is happening. And then um, maybe we'll have time to pass the elements and then I'll, uh, I'll pray for us. I'll, I'll pray kind of through this together. Let me read from John chapter 6. In John 6, at the beginning of John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And they, they want to forcibly make him king. And Jesus, basically, man will not live on bread alone, but by the very word of God. And so wherever you're at on your spiritual journey this morning, whether you're brand new to this church thing, brand new to Christianity, or whether you've been coming to Crossview for a long time, I think some of the truths that I'm about to read, just just listen to the words of Jesus. You might be wondering, how do I begin this journey? Where do I start? If you're brand new to Christianity, pick up the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. That's where you want to start. And he's going to point you to faith. He's going to point you to belief. In John chapter 6, the people are wanting to perform mighty deeds like, like God would do. God's deeds. And Jesus says this, there's only one thing God wants from you. Believe, have faith, believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is saying, believe in me. And then he's going to get into this teaching time. Again, he's just fed the 5,000 the day before. Now he's in Capernaum. And he's, he's going to say, actually, it's, you don't live on bread alone. You live on the word of God. And Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's what your soul longs for. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever. If you hear Jesus say, if, if, I mean, if, you, if you'd bow your heads now, we're just going to kind of pray and prepare to receive the body and blood. I want you to just look into your heart. Wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, are you hungry for life? You long for this eternal life that Jesus talked about. Maybe you're new and you're wondering, how do I become a Christian? Well, it begins by believing in Jesus. Putting your hope in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, confessing your sin. But even if you've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you know you still need to confess your sins. So wherever we're at this morning, I'm going to invite us to confess our sins. I'm going to remind you that Satan's days are numbered, that evil's days are numbered, but there's the wheat and the tares right now as the kingdom of God is coming and evil still persists. And sometimes you and I give in to temptation. 
But here's what I want you to say to Jesus this morning. Maybe you can pray this with me. Jesus, I take responsibility for my sin. I take responsibility for the evil within me. I'm not blaming Satan for what I've done. I'm aware, I'm aware that Satan plays a role, that, that, that he has tempted me, but it's me who's given in to the temptation. Jesus, as I read this gospel story this morning, I see that you've shown me yet again that there's another way to live, a way to live that doesn't lead to death, it leads to life, and it's the life that I long for. Because of what you've done for me on the cross, I receive this gift of life this gift of forgiveness, this opportunity to follow you into another way, to walk with you into a new life. Jesus, I'm going to receive the body and blood. I'm going to feast on your flesh and drink your blood this morning. It's my way of saying yes. Maybe you're saying yes to entering the kingdom of God, or maybe you're just saying yes, I want to go deeper into your kingdom. Jesus, hear our confession and offer us your forgiveness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you'll take the bread. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. For standing firm, standing fast against any temptation. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.